All right, well, good morning and welcome back to the Pepper Bible Church podcast and videos. And uh, in these videos and the podcast, we just review uh, sermons and services uh, that have just recently passed. I'm still one week behind. One of these days, I, uh, I will catch up. And this is a review from Sunday, the 18th of July. Now, back in 2 Kings chapter 2, and I'm going to just read a few verses uh, from verse 9. It came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. It came to pass as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. And so we're continuing to look at the life of uh, Elisha. And so far, we've really been kind of circling around the, the transition between Elijah and Elisha. And I think it's been important to see, because the same grace, as we noted several times before, that empowered Elijah was going to be the same grace that would empower Elisha. So as we've been going through Elisha's life, just as a, a broader review, we've had almost two mini-series. The, the initial calling of Elisha, we looked at his calling, we looked at his character, and we looked at his courage. And then as we've gone through the second mini-series, um, you could title it Same God, Same Grace, uh, we've seen Elijah's final goodbyes as he traveled from uh, Gilgal to Bethel, Jericho, and then across Jordan. Every situation uh, symbolized something. And we saw Elisha's faithful request when he was given the opportunity to ask anything of the prophet of God, of Elijah. He, he prayed in such a way that it revealed his heart. It showed that he was really the right man to be taken over from Elijah. Well, now we come to Elijah's fiery departure and Elisha's first miracle. So first of all, Elijah's fiery departure, a few things to take note of with that. First of all, there was a separation. A fiery chariot and horses separated the two men. And it would be amazing to see what that would be like for these two men to be walking through the wilderness together. And then all of a sudden, you know, this this fireball of chariot and, and horses just separate the two. Um, and really, fire had been prominent in Elijah's ministry. You think of the fire being called down from heaven with the prophets of Baal. And also the fire that was called down from heaven to destroy the captains in their 50s who had come to try and arrest him. But fire is prominent all the way through scripture. And our God is a God of fire. And perhaps this fiery chariot was to remind Elisha of the power and the person of God. If you think how often fire is symbolized in to, to, to symbolize separation, if I can get the words out, um, at the burning bush. You know, fire there proved many things, but in part, I think it was Moses being separated to serve God. You think of the fire in the light uh, and the pillar, uh, the smoke in the, the fire that provided light for the children of Israel as they were escaping Egypt. And then when the Egyptian army came to uh, bring them back, the, the fiery pillar moved from the front of them to behind them and it separated them from Egypt. The fire on the Mount Sinai, when the law was given. 
It was a separation of Israel to himself to be a unique people, the establishment of a nation. If you think of um, Acts chapter 2 with the, the Holy Spirit descending and it's described as being cloven tongues of fire. And again, as if the church has been separated to God. In 1 Corinthians 3.12, the, the works of believers are described as being put through the fire and the good works, the pure works, are separated from the impure. And so again and again, fire turns up all the way through the Bible. It points us to the presence, the purification and the power of God. And I think that's why we see it coming up here. The source of fire in Elijah's life was God. And that same God was going to be with Elisha. We go from the separation to celebration because no doubt Elijah celebrated to be in the presence of God. Um, you know, this whirlwind comes, not fire, not the chariot, but it was a whirlwind that carried Elijah to heaven. And it sounds very similar to the way Enoch was taken generations before him. But, you know, this wasn't an end of Elijah. It was a beginning. It was it was the, the beginning of eternity for him. Uh, and so, you know, we should be encouraged when we think about death. We may not like the process of dying, but death itself brings us into the presence of God. The last beat of a believer's heart is the starting pistol for eternity. Uh, one day we're going to breathe our last uh, air out here on earth and then we'll breathe in, as it were, in heaven. We'll close our eyes to the darkness of this world and open them in the light of God's presence. So death for the Christian should be a cause for celebration. Now, understandably, Elisha, though, felt sorrow. But I think it was a celebration for Elijah, but also for God. Zephaniah 3.17 tells us that God joys over his people with singing. Um, and Psalm 116.15 tells us that uh, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So the death of Elijah was a cause for celebration. But of course, there was sorrow. There's always sorrow for those left behind. Uh, we uh, are able to mourn. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonican church and told them that, you know, we mourn, but not as those that have no hope, but we do mourn. Uh, mourning is natural and good. Death is a, a good teaching tool for us. And when Elijah went, Elisha felt sorrow. He called out, my father, my father. He felt like he had become an orphan. He was humble and humbled by what he had seen. He referred to him as the chariot of Israel. One old commentator said that the public had lost its best guard. You know, Elijah, Elijah had been so much for Israel for all these years, but now he was gone. And it's remarkable that one who 10 or 20 years previous had wanted to die has never yet died. It can be argued that he's going to be one of the two witnesses that we find in the book of Revelation. But, you know, after Israel, after Elijah went against the prophets of Baal, he prayed that he would die because Jezebel sought his life. And yet God wouldn't answer that prayer. What a blessing that sometimes God doesn't give us what we ask for. He lived for another 10, 15, perhaps 20 years. And now, even now, he doesn't die. He's taken up into the presence of God. Well, we go from Elijah's fiery departure to Elisha's first miracle, and we see Elisha putting on faith, both literally and symbolically. He tears his own cloak and he puts on the cloak of Elijah. And, you know, this speaks to us of putting on faith all the way through the New Testament. And again, for the sake of these reviews, I'm not going to turn to every reference, but in Romans 13, 12, Ephesians 6, 13, Colossians 3, verse 10, 12 and 14, it speaks over and over again of putting on faith, putting on faith. Uh, we put on faith when we invest our time in reading the word and prayer. Romans 10, 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Uh, we put on faith when we pray and we see answers to prayer and we spend time in the presence of God. Uh, 
We put on faith when we observe how God has worked in the lives of others. And we can do that by reading Hebrews 11. Uh, we can mark the lives of those Christians who have come before us. And when we exercise our faith like any muscle, it grows in strength. So he not only puts on faith, but he demonstrates faith. Because remember, the sons of the prophets were witnessing some of the events from a distance. And when Elisha goes back to the river and he begins to you know, smite it with the mantle, he's demonstrating that he has faith. His first miracle was echoing the last miracle of Elijah. God did the same for Joshua. The same God was going to provide the same grace. Uh, and then we see that that demonstration of faith encouraged faith in those who are watching. And, you know, we as Christians, uh, to, to summarize all this, we ought not to fear death, but determined to live our life for God every day. We should embrace God's work for our life, whether the fire comes to protect or purify. We need to demonstrate our faith in order to be an encouragement to others. And one of the big helps that we can have is to think how others have encouraged us and then try to do the same thing for others in turn. Uh, the same God, the same grace. God will, and the next time we look at the life of Elisha, we're going to see him as he performs his second miracle. And we're going to see grace that brings healing. Anyway, we'll take a moment and then I'll give a review from the evening message as we continue going through the gospel according to Mark. Well, this is the review of the Sunday evening message from uh, July the 18th, and we're continuing to go through our series in the Gospel according to Mark. And in this message, we're in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. And it says, In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fast into their own houses, they will faint by the way. The divers of them came from afar. And his disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? And I'm going to end the reading there. I'd encourage you to go through and read through to the end of uh, verse 10. Uh, but for the sake of time, again, we want to keep these down to about 10 minutes per review. Um, and I read that segment because when I went through the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, there was a big focus on the miracle itself. What I want to do on this occasion is to talk uh, about Christ's compassion. Uh, one thing I want to note, uh, a couple of things to note before we get into the miracle itself. Much of learning is about repetition. We write lines in school, we recite words, um, and some of my favorite jokes are based upon repetition. My kids used to love the joke when they were younger, not so much now, but when they were younger, that Pete and repeat are in a boat, Pete fell out, who was left? And they, of course, reply, well, repeat. I say Pete and repeat were in a boat and Pete fell out. Who was left? Repeat. And so on and on and on it goes. And, you know, for that reason, it's an easy remembered joke. But Jesus Christ often would repeat things. And all the way through God's word, we see repetition. We see memorials because God knows we're a forgetful people. Uh, Paul told Timothy that he would be a good minister if he put the people in remembrance of the truths of God's word. So there's a repetition of a miracle here. Uh, and it's for a reason. It's a different event to the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, some commentators go to great lengths to try and prove that this was some adaptation, some repetition. They try and make it sound like, uh, you know, it was a mistake of some kind. But it's very, very different. Both events are miraculous feedings. Uh, but there's different sized crowds. There's different amounts of food to begin with and to end with. Uh, there are different sources for the food. 
Uh, there are different sized baskets to carry the food away. And even the time of year is different because the words used for grass or for, or for growth in the two different passages indicates that one took place in the spring and the other was a different time of year. The previous miracle of feed in the multitudes was in a Jewish area on the western side of Galilee. Now Jesus is on the eastern side uh, in Decapolis, a predominantly Gentile area. And so these are two different miracles repeating some of the, the, the miraculous powers of God. But here I want to focus on something a bit different, and that's the compassion of Christ. Okay, then. So first of all, the compassion of Christ on the crowds. And I want you to know, first of all, that Christ's compassion is unique. I believe strongly in looking at miracles as signs pointing to a deeper truth. But we shouldn't so spiritualize a miracle that we miss the compassion that underpins it and motivates it. Um, love uh, was a motivation in all that Jesus did. Love for God, love for his heavenly father, love for sinners. Um, love in the Bible is unique, even in the law, because the law is rooted in love. Um, you know, Matthew 22, uh, verse 34 speaks about uh, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. You know, these two things are the, the foundation of the law. They're the heart of the law. Um, Christ's compassion then is unique. There's nothing like it in the world. Uh, no other religion, no other human philosophy has love at its heart the way that uh, Jesus Christ does. And so Christ's compassion is unique. It's also unlimited. You know, it wasn't that long before that Jesus had fed the 5,000. And again, it was a different event. Um, but, you know, here he feeds 4,000 more. And, you know, maybe there were other occasions when uh, Jesus miraculously fed the crowds and provided for the needs of others. Um, but Jesus was always helping the needy and he never ran out of compassion. He always was willing to help those in genuine need who came to him. So his compassion is unique and it's unlimited. He showed compassion to Jew and Gentile, adults and children, men and women, skeptics and seekers. And although there were times when, you know, there were those who went away from him, you know, Jesus was never the one to instigate uh, turning people away. Once they had rejected him, then, you know, they, he would move on to another town or city. But his uh, initial approach was always to show compassion. The word compassion that's used is instructive itself. It's not the word used for being compassionate to friends and family. It's the word used for showing compassion to those who we would deem unworthy, those who were, uh, you know, offensive almost. And so Jesus showed compassion to the lepers, to the lost, to Gentiles, and to those who were possessed with demons. He reached out to them. Uh, Christ's compassion finally was unconditional. Jesus didn't say to them, look, if you receive me uh, as Messiah, I will feed you. Um, you know, he met their needs without compassion, without without condition. Um, it wasn't conditional on our return. And I believe that everything Jesus did was to point to himself as Messiah, but his compassion was unconditional. It wasn't conditioned on the circumstances. You know, Jesus showed compassion to others when he was hungry, uh, when he was uh, tired, when he was liked or disliked. Um, you know, he was always willing. So Christ's compassion then, we noted, was uh, it's unique, it's unlimited, and unconditional. And it's also understanding. You know, the crowd had suffered in their pursuit of Jesus. And Jesus knew the frame of people. He knows our frame. He knows that we're dust. And so Jesus, knowing the need, reached out to them and met that need. Uh, our pursuit of Christ, like those who follow Jesus Christ here in the, the wilderness, 
it cost them something. And our pursuit of Christ may cost us something. But Jesus understands. He's our good shepherd. Now, the second thing that we saw was the compassion on Christ of Christ on Christians. The, the disciples uh, didn't instinctively say, well, Jesus did this before. Let's just give him a loaf and he'll feed everyone. Uh, they said, how you know, can a man satisfy these men with bread in the wilderness? Jesus was gentle in his repetition. Jesus treated them with patience. And the very definition of gentleness is pay and patience is that it's shown to those who are undeserving of it. And we need to seek to do the same. Jesus understood the need, um, not just for the repetition of the miracle, but for uh, the, the benefit that it would be to us to have truths repeated. We forget too easily. And different stages of life, we need to learn lessons from the past as we seek to apply it in different ways. Now, as different influences distract us, we need to be reminded of truths. And so God is gracious in that he's gentle in his repetition. He's aware of the need to repeat truths to teach us. Uh, there's the blessing of Christ's resources that are made available to the crowds here. And so as we look at this miracle, there's much for us to learn about Christ's compassion on the crowds, but also Christ's compassion on Christians. And that compassion, we need to endeavor to show to others that God puts in our lives. I trust these things have been a blessing to your heart and uh, that God will grant grace as we seek to follow him and serve him.